I'm Aaron Henkin. This is the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. My name is Jenny, and my question is, why are there so many deer everywhere? You feel like you've been seeing more deer than usual around? Absolutely. They're just multiplying exponentially, and they're all over the place. Where do you live, Jenny? Uh, I live north, nor- in North Baltimore. And, like, where do you see these deer? Just out and about, like, in Baltimore City? In the city, yeah. I'm on my way home from work. I see them. I walk to work, work at a local college in the city. I've even recently seen them on my road, which was the first time this summer, a whole group of them. So you're seeing deer everywhere, more deer everywhere, and your question is why? Yeah, what's going on with the deer population? Was there like a deer baby boom? (laughs) All right, Jenny, I'm going to see what I can figure out for you. All right, awesome. Thank you. Well, the first thing I can tell you is you are certainly not alone in your suspicion about the deer population. They do seem to be everywhere. This is Carrie Engel of Baltimore County. In my own neighborhood, I walked my dog not too long ago. There's 19 deer just jumping over fences and, you know, not bothering us at all, but they they were out there. When she's not out walking her dog, Ms. Engel works as the retail greenhouse manager at Valley View Farms on York Road in Cockeysville. It's one of the biggest garden centers in the region. And her customers are constantly asking, how do I keep the deer out of my garden? So over here are our perennials. She tells gardeners, if you want to plant stuff that deer love to eat, plants like hydrangeas and daylilies, you're setting yourself up for a headache. you got to work with the deer, not against them. Deer usually will turn their noses up at evergreens, ornamental grasses, black-eyed Susans, and other native species. So if you take a look, you'll see that this Caryopteris will have a deer-resistant tag. And if you kind of go down here and smell that, it does have a fragrance. Oh, okay. The deer don't like that smell. They generally don't like the higher fragrance stuff, no. Wow, so these plants all have like a... Uh, the ones that are deer resistant have a picture of a deer with a Ghostbuster sign over it. So you. <laughs> That's right. We've had so much problem with them over the years that we just have to do this for our customers and for us. It helps us when somebody comes in and you're planting their landscape. That is a question. How much light do you have? Can you get water to it? And do you have deer? <laughs> the hydrangeas seem to be the real uh, issue between gardeners and deers, huh? The gardeners love them and deer love them too. That's right. Same goes for um, when I first planted daylilies in my garden. And I did have a hydrangea story of my own. I took two home in my little baby pickup truck, went to the front of my house, took them both out, put them on the front lawn, went in and had lunch, came out, and they'd been eaten. Before you could even plant Before them? Before I could even plant them, yeah. So I spray everything now as I get them home. <laughs> We're going to check out those sprays in the deer repellent aisle at Valley View Farms in just a few minutes. But first, I want to introduce you to a couple of journalists who have put some serious time and energy into investigating what's been going on with the deer population in Maryland. Banner reporters Hallie Miller and Liz Bowie. Hi, Hallie. Hi. Hi, Liz. Hi. You guys have different voices, so we'll be able to tell you apart on the podcast. Uh, You guys dug into the numbers as pertains to these deer and found out what? Is the deer population, in fact, exploding in Maryland right now? Well, the answer kind of depends on where you live in Maryland. Statewide, the deer population actually peaked in the early 2000s and is down about a third since then. But it probably doesn't feel like that if you live in the Baltimore-Washington corridor. 
Right. We interviewed a guy who's been tracking the state's deer population for decades. His name is George Timko. He's with the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, and he says if you're a hunter out in rural Maryland right now, you might well be having trouble even finding a deer. Although in suburban and urban environments, those deer populations or deer densities have probably increased because we can't use a lot of the lethal tools that we can in rural areas. The Maryland DNR's deer management program says the recommended deer density should be about 10 to 20 per square mile. But the thing is, right now, in some of these suburban areas, the population is clocking in at more than 200 deer per square mile. And that's not so much about deer as it is about humans. People have differing opinions on how, if, and when the deer population should be managed. And that's the more challenging aspect of managing a population of any species, much less a deer population that is viewed by a lot of the public as being, you know, a pretty docile animal. So if you're a politician in the Baltimore, D.C. corridor, let's kill more deer, not a popular platform to stand on. For one thing, hunting restrictions are just tighter in areas where there's a denser human population for safety reasons. But there's also a philosophical pushback from people who are generally not hunters. Right. And so we end up with these urban and suburban zones where we're trying instead to manage the deer population by non-lethal means, like fencing and netting and repellent sprays. There's even a deer sterilization effort underway by the Maryland DNR. Mr. Timko says teams will go out with guns that shoot tranquilizer darts with remote transmitters. The animal's darted, it's sedated, blindfolded, ear-tagged. Um, has basically taken to a surgery, even a remote surgery center. The ovaries of the does are removed. They're cauterized. They're sutured. Um, the animal's given a shot of antibiotics. It's revived with a revival drug, and then it's released on site. So that's a project that's neither simple or cheap. Yeah, and it's not an immediate fix either. So if you've got 100, 200 plus deer per square mile, and you sterilize them, you're still going to have 100, 200 deer per square mile for a long time until individuals in that population die from attrition. So you've got this non-lethal, slow-acting method of deer control on one end of the spectrum. And then if you go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, you've got the state's sanctioned sharpshooters. Deputized deer assassins. Basically, they're hired guns that come in and remove deer um, using high-powered suppressed firearms at nighttime. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of red tape that goes through that process, and for good reason, um, before any of those sorts of things can occur. So, yeah. And this happens in specialized situations where the deer population is a problem, but recreational hunting isn't allowed. I got to say at this point, I'm asking myself, like, how did we get to a moment where we've got deer hitmen with night vision goggles shooting these animals under the cover of dark? What is the threat exactly that merits a response like that? And why now? Did we have a problem like this 100 years ago? And who is the problem exactly? Is it the deer or is it us? You're listening to the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. We'll get into those questions and more in just a moment. Hallie and Liz, I think it's probably safe to say this deer population dilemma of ours is a modern problem, yeah? Yeah, suffice it to say, a couple hundred years ago when people in this state were hunting deer every day for food and clothing, deer in the backyard, not a problem. The population actually got pretty slim. 
In fact, when we were doing our reporting, we dug through some state records and we came across a law that got passed in 1729 that made it illegal to kill a deer from January to July. So half the year, basically. And if you violated that law, the state of Maryland issued you a fine of 400 pounds of tobacco. This is a steep penalty. Fast forward to the early 20th century, and deer herds in Maryland were more protected through animal refuge sites and wildlife management efforts. Meanwhile, as the state gets more and more populated with humans, people are out there in their own self-interest, killing off predators like wolves and mountain lions, which, by the way, also happen to be deer predators. The cities grow, the decades roll by, and after a few generations, recreational hunting goes on the decline. And so all of these events add up to a deer population that was at one point almost wiped out now, rebounding in a major way. All the while, more and more people are moving into Maryland, expanding into new developments across the state, until we get to where we are today, Maryland has about 6 million people and about 230,000 deer. Thus the close encounters. And the feeling that we're surrounded by deer, especially in urban and suburban zones. Where hunting is restricted. And where we like to plant hydrangeas and daylilies for them to snack on. So what's the problem really, other than a few munched up garden plants? Is there a legitimate reason for us to be spending time and money as a state to try and control the deer population other than just being annoyed? Right. We put that question to George Timko from the Deer Control Program at the Maryland DNR. He said deer overpopulation can be a problem for the environment and even for the health of the deer themselves. Deer can really strip the habitat for future generations of forests that are supposed to come and replace them. They also damage the habitat for other species of wildlife that are dependent on those forests. And then, of course, Too many deer is a bad thing for the deer population itself because too many deer really degrades the habitat to the point where the deer health declines over time. Then, of course, there's the issue of Lyme disease, which gets transmitted by deer ticks. So, you know, the more deer you have roaming around, the more ticks and the more Lyme disease. There are other reasons, of course, public safety, because deer and deer vehicle collisions obviously can injure and or kill people. So there's lots of reasons why um, deer populations should be managed. And in many cases, the public tells us that when they do call and complain. That said, there's obviously not a hotline for the deer to call and complain about us. Uh, Insurance companies, they report thousands of vehicle deer collisions in Maryland every year. I venture to guess the deer usually get the worst end of those interactions, not to mention the hunters and the state-sponsored sharpshooters they have to contend with. Let me ask you, Hallie and Liz, just to take a minute here and reflect on your own takeaway after reporting on the past and the present of our interspecies interactions with deer. This is ostensibly a story about deer, but it's also about us, yeah? While I love to drive down to the eastern shore and see deer um, galloping across a cornfield or a soybean field, I don't love deer when they're munching on my flowers and I'm a gardener. And so my feeling is get the deer out of suburban areas. I would like to see a lot fewer deer um, in my life. I think I was surprised to see how political this issue was, how, like you said, it's a story about deer, but it's also a story about us and our feelings about the environment and our interactions with wildlife. We obviously just lived through a pandemic where the leading hypothesis as to why that happened was because of human-animal interaction that wasn't sanctioned. 
And so the more and more we interact with wildlife and encroach on their spaces, probably the more likely we are to have these confrontations, these close encounters, like you said, that maybe aren't appreciated all the time, but kind of goes to show what happens when we continue to develop and populate as humans do. Hallie Miller and Liz Bowie, thank you both for your reporting. Thanks for your thoughts. And uh, thanks for rolling with me on this episode. Thank you. Thank you. I did promise before we wrap up that we'd get back to that deer repellent aisle at the garden store, Valley View Farms. This, I got to say, is big business. There is, in fact, an entire aisle of the shop dedicated to protecting your plants from hungry deer. We've got shakeaway, critter ridder, deer scram, deer stopper. Yeah, most of this aisle is devoted to deer. Uh, So you can buy anything from a little spray. You can use concentrate. Some of this stuff really stinks a lot. We have a product called Bobex. It works, is all I can say. Do you dare smell it? All right, sure. For the sake of journalism. All right. Oh, oh, man, that's all it is, that. It does have some nasty stuff in it, and it's usually a combination. Some of them use uh, pet urine. Some of them use putrescent egg whites. And I'm sorry, I've ruined your scent. No, that's all right. I'm going to smell that for a while. (laughs) That's right. But um, spill it in your car one time. Oh, no. But anyway, so this, you can take your like tulip bulbs that animals tend to like and dip it in that and then put it in the ground and they're not going to bother that. So that's a kind of a nice way to go. Carrie Engel says there's no end to the lengths gardeners will go to ward off deer from seven foot high fencing to motion activated scarecrows that spray jets of water. But she says one of the best deterrents is a canine companion. Ms. Engels has a pet Alaskan Malamute that patrols her yard. Just the scent of a dog, the barking, really does keep deer away. And you can hear them go nuts against the back fence, and you know deer are out there, and it's kind of fun to watch them interact. Uh, With that uh, parting bit of advice, we're going to turn back to our listener, Jenny, now who asked this week's question. Jenny, you have a dog right here uh, sitting next to us while we're talking, by the way. What's your dog's name? That's Rosie. Has Rosie uh, ever had an encounter with a deer? Many, many an encounter. And she goes absolutely nuts. And it's okay when we're in the woods and she's off the leash. But when she's on the leash, I get pulled every which way and not so fun. I got to say, this investigation turned over some interesting answers, I think, about uh, where and why the deer population seems so dense in certain areas of the state and and how we humans are are choosing to deal with it. What are you left thinking here at, at the end of this story? Well, I was, you know, I, I, I assumed it had something to do with loss of predators, but I had no idea it was loss of human predators. So that's a big surprise. I mean, it will be a continued conundrum. I work, um, I'm an ecologist. I work with native plant material. Um, and I'd say I do love the idea of, of deer eating the invasive species like daylilies, which basically contribute nothing environmentally or non-native hydrangeas. Um, But a big problem that I'm seeing in my work is deer are also eating native materials that they wouldn't traditionally eat just because everything is getting devastated ecologically. So it really is, uh, it's it's a big problem. Jenny, this was a fascinating question. I learned a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for all the research, and I love your show. Appreciate it. And that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, an original production of WYPR in Baltimore in partnership with the Baltimore Banner. Big thanks to my Banner colleagues Hallie Miller and Liz Bowie. You can find their article about Maryland's deer population and a lot of other great journalism by them and their team 
at thebaltimorebanner.com. Got a question of your own? You can put us to work at wypr.org slash curiosity. Where we go next is up to you. And by the way, if you like the show, you can do us a favor and drop a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen on. Just a line or two. Your words really do go a long way toward helping other curious listeners find their way to the podcast. I appreciate you. For the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening. Be in touch. And we'll do it again next week. The Maryland Curiosity Bureau is made possible with grant support from the Peel Center for Baltimore History and Architecture. Online at thepeelcenter.org.